so uh, Ajahn uh, Sajito likened uh, the the human condition to to being in the wilderness. He sort of sometimes calls the sangha. You know, he's in the Thai forest tradition, like the 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 people of the wilderness, and we can forget that uh, in the wilderness we need refuge. When we're in the wilderness, you take care, you stay alert, you're um, uh, awake to what's happening. And we want uh, shelter, we want shelter, but we, we don't always know how to take it. And there's a way in which we can, we can live our life on the run from a baseline level of, of agitation. And in our ordinary lives, we, we usually think that we do stuff. We have maybe jobs or you know, responsibilities that we do stuff because it needs to get done. And that may be true in some sense, but but in a certain way, um, all the stuff we do is can be a kind of channel for the ambient anxiety that can be the background of our life. And sometimes we experience unsatisfactoriness, dukkha, in a kind of amorphous longing for something, for some other life or some, something that feels a little beyond our reach, but feels real. And this is uh, Adam, Adam Phillips. It says, um, our lives become an elegy to needs unmet and desires sacrificed to possibilities refused, to roads not taken. The myth of our potential can make of our own, of our lives a perpetual falling short, a continual and continuing loss, a sustaining, a sustained and sometimes sustaining rage. But how would we know if we had realized our potential? If we don't have potential, what do we have? We can't imagine our lives without the unlived lives they contain. We have an abiding sense, however obscure and obscured, that the lives we do lead are informed by the lives that escape us. That our lives are defined by loss but loss of what might have been, loss, that is, of things never experienced. I, I find that a, a poignant description of that, uh, that sense of our life laying somewhere else, you know, kind of, 
this life defined by the unlived lives. And so often um, people are, are knocked over and bewildered by dukkha and fail to understand dukkha and live in such a way so as to make the truth of dukkha vanish. And we can have some modest success if we're extremely fortunate for a little while but not forever and never complete success. And a part of our mind knows that our fantasies, the proposed solutions to the first noble truth can't truly work. When we subtly fantasize about the way out of the first noble truth, there's a part of our own heart that knows it, uh, this isn't a complete answer. And it can even be deadening or numbing to fantasize about solutions that we know in some part of our heart can't fully work. We need, in other words, a path, a path that is inclusive enough that it will not be shattered by tragedy. We need a path that makes sense of that feeling of, uh, that Phillips was alluding to of always being a step or two behind our real life. We can feel that way even more acutely in this moment we need a path that makes sense of all of this. Leonard Cohen uh, famously sang, even though it all went wrong, I'll stand before the Lord a song with nothing on my tongue, but hallelujah. How do we actually redeem the pain woven into the fabric of, of existence? And what we find is that there is something in the heart that can relax with, with the first noble truth, meaning that the diagnosis feels like the medicine. Yeah, the diagnosis feels like the medicine. Put differently, maybe we say uh, that something in us even if we've never practiced before, even if we've never heard the Dharma, something in us longs for peace, yeah? And it feels like our nervous system longing for the Dharma, longing for some way, some path that actually can make sense of tragedy that can, uh, account for that disjointed feeling that can haunt our life, yeah, of being a step behind our real life. And peace, even a little bit, even just a little bit, even just a breath sometimes can feel like coming home, can feel like shelter, feels like refuge. 
now as i speak here i'm beginning to to point to the the place of of equanimity but before that lays uh, another question uh, which is the question of of uh, vulnerability that what what is our relationship to vulnerability what is how do we hold the kind of fragility of the human condition the fragility of any life and this of course is is an urgent question in the middle of a of a pandemic where we've been thrust into to to living in precariousness we can feel that and in the meditation world in buddhist traditions there there are some um there's some like conflicting signals to like how what to make of vulnerability on the one hand there is a kind of deep encouragement to connect with vulnerability to honor it yeah to uh dignify it in ways and then there's also this other side of practice we hear it in the suttas about essentially rising up above beyond all vulnerability to find happiness independent of conditions right vulnerability seems to imply that our happiness is is dependent on some things we are dependent our bodies our lives our minds we are dependent how, how does it feel to actually take that in versus this other view of practice of the fruit of practice where our happiness is independent of conditions the sure heart's release and so how do we we make sense of this in what way in other words are we animals seeking self-preservation seeking safety and in what way are we awakened beings escaping from the forces of the the animal world yeah in what ways are we escaping from the condition of vulnerability the buddhist path this this insight meditation tradition it begins with a recognition of our vulnerability right the cardinal kind of archetypal story of the buddha encountering aging and sickness and death a kind of uh, yeah trying to honor the the existential condition of the human human uh, human life and the the suttas give very vivid descriptions about the way the world permeates us yeah like that uh that the world the senses 
like where the world is always touching us. It's run all the way through us. At every sense door, there is, uh, we are being uh, touched and experience has a kind of relentlessness. This is a very vulnerable state. This is a very porous state. But in general, in the early tradition, this is construed as a problem to be solved, not uh, a doorway into some other way of being. More, more kind of modern approaches uh, to in interpretations of, of Buddhist practice have emphasized vulnerability, right? And so, that the whole suite of of self-compassion and associated practices tending to our failures our foibles with care uh, there's the focus on on uh, trauma in a lot of um you know buddhist uh, articulations and trauma of course is itself an acknowledgement that that we can be hurt, we may have been hurt. There's the emphasis on embodiment, the kind of like soft, sensitive body, the body as a resource, the, the kind of delicate, fragile body as um, a, a, a way of connecting with our own being. And the, some of the, the sort of more classical uh, Buddhist responses to, to death and loss have been uh, rewritten in modern articulation. So like one, one monk um, dis, you know, uh, described uh, this is on the kind of classical side, described the the absence of grief when his mother died. Yeah. That would be a kind of expression of the moving towards invincibility, yeah? The, the world not ruffling the heart, yeah? And... Um, some years ago, I said um, in a talk like that I, you know, in, in sort of considering how to meet the, the grief of, uh, of a single life or the pain in the world. Um, and even though the Buddha, the aspiration is to be free of sorrow, grief, and lamentation, I said something like, I want my Buddha to grieve, yeah, and um, that was not received universally well, yeah. Um, there's an emphasis on on the uh, the poignancy of life. Uh, 
yeah, that 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 it is fleeting is what gives its meaning rather than a sense of needing to escape from the fleetingness. Yeah. This is Martha Nussbaum says, um, the condition of being good is that it should always be possible for you to be morally destroyed by something you couldn't prevent. That says something very important about the human condition of the ethical life. It is based on a trust in the uncertain and on a willingness to be exposed. It's based on being more like a plant than a jewel, something rather fragile, but whose very particular beauty is inseparable from its fragility. very particular beauty is inseparable from its fragility. Yeah. And in another, uh, another essay, she goes on to, to really actually highlight the, essentially the, the moral risk of denying vulnerability, the moral risk in failing to honor ourself as as animals. So she writes, um, human beings are animals and we inhabit the animal world. We should learn all we can from the continuities between the emotions of humans and those of other animals. The diseases of human life, however, are for the most part diseases that are utterly foreign to the world of elephants and bonobos, even the more aggressive chimpanzees. Because these diseases, many of them at any rate, spring from a hatred of embodiment and death, of the condition of being an animal. And the human is the only animal that hates its own animality. To put my thesis in a nutshell, she uses this word anthropodenial, uh, the denial of our animal being. Anthropodenial, a uniquely human tendency, is not simply a pernicious intellectual position, it is a large cause of moral deformity as people struggle to wrest the world to their purposes and to deny the shameful fact of helplessness, it often proves useful to target a group of humans as the ones who are the shameful ones, the weak ones. We are strong and not helpless at all because we are able to dominate them. She concludes, I've argued that humanity, the condition of being merely animally human and our painful awareness of that non-transcendent condition are major sources of inhumanity, the ability to withhold compassion and respect from other human beings. 
My argument suggests that a deeper inquiry into the unique problems humans have in dealing with their mortality, decay, and general vulnerability will help us understand inhumanity more fully. So she's making uh, uh, complex arguments here, yeah, to say that our failure to, to fully grapple with our own vulnerability, with the potential helplessness, the kind of shameful helplessness that that can put us in touch with, sometimes deforms our heart insofar as we have to find a way of celebrating our own strength and diminishing others as the weak, yeah? And she's making an argument in terms of, of, um, of gender and sexism, misogyny. Uh, and so, um, so that line we, we hear so often of Mary Oliver, like of, um, yeah, letting the soft animal of your body love what it loves. This is one side of how we might approach vulnerability. And here is the other. One sutta, uh, a god, uh, a kind of celestial god figure, uh, Subrahma appears before the Buddha to ask this. Always anxious is this mind. The mind is always agitated about problems, present and future. Please tell me the release from fear. The Buddha's response. Not apart from awakening and austerity, not apart from sense restraint, not apart from relinquishing all, do I see any safety for living beings? Not apart from relinquishing all, do I see any safety for living beings? So in the classical uh, tradition, the Buddha saw vulnerability and wanted out a form of peace that was unreachable by the harsh world of, of the senses. And we're feeling our vulnerability right now, right? That a strand of proteins can undo us. And almost everything we take our society to be, that's vulnerable. Now, how do we relate to this as practitioners? We are seeing, in a sense, interdependence is not only a blessing, but a threat too. Right? It's celebrated as a kind of insight and the, the actual experience of the porousness of the, the boundary between self and world, 
to know oneself as the world, to know the world as oneself, to uh, to 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 let go of the the sense of the center of one's own being located here, Matthew. Like this is celebrated. This brings a lot of relief and peace. But the underbelly, of course, of interdependence, I think the classical tradition would say that it's a threat too, and we see it now. Yeah, if we want to, if we're, uh, there are no partitions in Indra's net, yeah? And that means everything flows and circulates. Our life is giving and taking, yeah, offering and receiving all the goodness and all the dukkha. And so in the classical model, there's a kind of the deep uh, kind of attainment of, of letting go, letting go very deeply, letting go of pleasure, of letting go of the need to become, to have uh, another moment, to, to be born into a new identity of relinquishing time, of relinquishing all, relinquishing all, entering the stream of Dharma. And this is um, said to be a kind of protection from the vicissitudes of the first noble truth, the flow of pleasure and pain and gain and loss. This is Bhikkhu Bodhi. The ultimate escape from anxiety is summed up in four simple measures. The most decisive are awakening and relinquishment, wisdom and relief, release. These, however, do not arise in a vacuum, but are only a consequence of training and in virtue and meditation expressed here as restraint of the sense faculties and austerity, the energy of contemplative endeavor. The entire programs directed to giving, digging up the hidden root of anguish which the existentialists with all their philosophical acumen could not discern. That root is clinging. Asleep in the deep night of ignorance, we cling to our possessions, to loved ones, to our position and status, and most tenaciously of all, we cling to these five aggregates of form, feeling, perception, volition and consciousness, taking them to be permanent, pleasurable, and a truly existent self. To cling to anything is to aim at preserving it, at sealing it off from the ravenous appetite of time. Yet to make such an attempt is to run smack in against the fixed degree decree written into the texture of being that whatever comes to be must pass away. Try as we may, there's no escape 
the sonorous truth wells up from the depths of being and we can either heed its message or continue to stuff our ears. The final escape from anxiety and care is not a warm reassurance that the universe will give us a cheerful hug. It is rather a call for us to take the step that we habitually resist by wearing away the clinging attachment and acquisitiveness that lie within as the buried root of fear. So I've laid out these two ways of meeting vulnerability. And how is the embrace and the rejection of vulnerability reconciled? How do we fit these two together I would say uh, not perfectly, yeah. They won't go together perfectly. But for me, I have a deep affection for both sides of the dialectic. I don't in a way wanna give up either. And I, I think in my own heart, in my own practice, in a sense, the way that I've tried to resolve some of this tension is by holding the teaching on equanimity in a particular way. Equanimity that is so, I don't know, it's so foundational in our practice, in our growing freedom. Uh, and it's in a way, we can't even speak about mindfulness without talking about equanimity, the, the uh, kind of openness that we've been discussing. And, and so for me, equanimity represents a a partial way of finding my place amongst these dueling understandings of vulnerability. Equanimity, it, it deepens the poignancy of our lives, but drains our lives of melodrama. And so the, the care, the kind of rhythms of care, of concern in our life are still there, but somehow um, the, the gripping sticky quality of melodrama is um, yeah, dra is drained, drained out of our lives. And more and more of what we, certain cares that we had um, just become easy to actually shed in light of this. So um, 
some versions of equanimity are really all about protection. But for me, they are about uh, transforming pain into care. That, that in a way, love, love is the outcome of meeting pain with, with patience, with tolerance. We have these, these bodies so sensitive and hearts that are so easily moved. And to meet the kind of pain without equanimity, experiencing pain without equanimity leads, it hardens the heart. It may even lead to something like hate. But to experience pain with equanimity leads to a, a kind of revolution in the heart, it catalyzes love. I'm not, not a, a scholar, but um, I, the, the study of the word the etymologically uh, uh, equanimity, there are connotations of eye, of seeing and gazing upon without interference. Now, this does not imply a, an acceptance of the conditions of the world or an acceptance even of the conditions of one's life. It is, a, it is a, the commitment not to create friction with the present moment sensory experience. So Sarah, Sarah Lazar uh, says equanimity is an even-minded state or tendency towards all experiences or objects regardless of their affective valence, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, or source. So a, a, a momentary state or a kind of habit of equanimity where all experiences or objects are, regardless of their, their, their valence or source, is met with an even-mindedness, a balanced heart. It is, in a way, a kind of radical nonviolence towards experience. Dr. King spoke about nonviolence as a kind of path towards justice, reconciliation, transformation. But we can equally think about nonviolence as a kind of um, in our relationship with ourselves. Like what would that actually mean to be like deeply, abidingly, beautifully nonviolent with your experience? How much might the heart open in that gesture? One of my teachers said, um, don't fight with yourself at any level. Don't fight with yourself at any level. That's what uh, Shinzen Young said. And so we actually become connoisseurs of the friction that we create, the friction that is resistance and we start to relax. 
this is not trying to uh, re-engineer our preferences. This is not trying to convince ourselves that we like what we don't like or that we're okay with something when we're not. But it is draining the kind of compulsion to act out our preferences. Yeah. To be driven by the forces of clinging. Lazar goes on to, to uh, highlight three kind of key aspects in this, uh, this equanimity. She says, it's, we, we are asked to widen our perspective that in suffering, the mind collapses, right? It may become absorbed. We know this, maybe um, all of us at some times during this pandemic have likely had the experience of the mind getting real narrow. It's like all oh, the whole peripheral field of vision, the peripheral field of our life, the peripheral field that is the rest of life disappears and where life gets very small, very confined. And so in this gesture of equanimity, we widen the perspective we know that those stars up in the sky that we can see maybe even more clearly than usual, those stars are trillions of miles away. The light has taken years, maybe thousands of years to even reach our eyes that we're looking at the past. And amidst the vastness of space and time, maybe we can let go some. Maybe we can appreciate the long arc of the story of suffering and freedom from suffering much longer than our life. And she says to more readily engage incoming sensory information. One of my teachers said, uh, you know, just in the kind of describing some of the, the strength, the courage, it's a willingness to be vulnerable, but it, like we find our strength amidst that. Come what, you know, I remember said like, come what may. I'm just sitting here, come what may, besieged by all the forces of suffering, come what may. And so we learn to, uh, to allow the winds of feeling to blow, to not brace against experience, to know that even when the, uh, the wind blows, it won't blow anything over inside of us. It's just wind, it's just wind. And then lastly, she says to disengage from evaluative thinking and reactive behavior. And here she's alluding to the kind of like, that the, the approach of non-judgment, of, of patience, of tolerance, of not being seduced by the kilesas, 
of not um, building uh, uh, the moment out of a unacknowledged pain, grief around the pain that can then become a whole idea of what's wrong with this moment, what I need, what my life should be. It can become a, a whole world is born out of our the failure to have a deep relationship with the impact of pain. And so we track our equanimity level, like we soak it in when it's higher, we're careful, we're more cautious. When it's lower, we do what we can to, to soften, to open, to bear with, to find patience to hedge our bets when the equanimity is low. We can pay attention to this on retreat, the, the kind of rise and fall of equanimity. And it's said that um, it can run very deep. And equanimity is said to be kind of the closest state to, uh, to awakening. And it combines this kind of courageous um, um, confidence. We're so confident uh, because we're no longer afraid that we're going to be overrun by experience. We're deeply confident, but also totally porous. We are still fastened to a dying animal, but that's not such a problem anymore. Yeah. It's not such a problem anymore. So Leonard Cohen said, um, I wish there was a treaty we could sign. I do not care who takes this bloody hill. I'm angry and I'm tired all the time. I wish there was a treaty. I wish there was a treaty between your love and mine. Just sit for a moment together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate